Would you join me? Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you have a handout there, I think you may be wanting to follow along with that. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Um, a familiar passage this time of the year. I've never preached on this. Um, let me say at the outset, we will not even begin to scratch the surface of this passage. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to reverse the order that I thought I was going to do. I thought I would read the passage initially and then we would launch into our notes on the handout. But as I thought about it, uh, and this will maybe cause hopefully not a lot of trouble with those running the screens uh, because I've loaded it a different way. Um, But I'm going to actually give a little background, okay, and then we'll read the text. So this will be important uh, for us this morning. Isaiah chapter number 9. But would you look just for a moment, so you have, this is going to really help you today if you have your text open, and you'll keep it open there. Most of the time we'll look at just two or three other passages to support it, but the vast majority of our time just spent right here. Uh, You will not see it on the screen yet, okay? But I want you to notice verse number one, so before we see it on the screen, just go ahead and look at it with your eyes, you see the first word, but. So this tells us there's a major contrast that is taking place. So just a little bit of background uh, to what's going on, and then we'll jump into our text. Uh, A few things about our text. So here we go. I I don't know that I've ever read a passage that has as fluid of verb tenses as we're going to see in a moment. I'm going to go ahead and warn you, the verb tenses are going to jump back and forth. Uh, And because they're doing that, you're literally going to be jumping, sometimes within one verse, 700 years into the future from what Isaiah is writing. So it's very difficult to understand. Hopefully by us getting a little bit of background, we will we'll be able to make more sense of the text. So Isaiah is a major prophet, probably the greatest of the prophets listed in the major prophets. Um, I read chapters 1 through 9 the other day to try to get ready to preach on this. And as I did, several things stood out to me. So here goes some background. I know you're like, Jeff, just kind of get to the point. We've had a lot of singing this morning. Okay, you got to forgive me. I'm an expositional teacher, preacher, and what that means is I'm going to try to give you background. I, just, I can't help it. I'm going to do it every single time. So here's where we're at. We're in the divided kingdom of Israel. So Israel's come up out of Egypt. They've been led by Moses. He died. They've been led by Joshua. He died. Then they were led by multiple judges, and they all passed off the scene. Eventually, Israel decided we want a king. Still a united kingdom, God gave them Saul and then David, the greatest, and then David's son Solomon. But after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. There were ten northern tribes that kind of took the name of Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became known as the, tribe of, as the tribes of Benjamin, I'm sorry, of Judah. So we have Judah and then we have Israel, the ten northern tribes. Isaiah is primarily writing to Judah though it applies to the ten northern tribes. So remember this. Again, you say, I don't like history. Just try to work with me. This is written around 740 B.C. But really, that's not totally accurate because Isaiah apparently is writing along through his life. So it apparently takes decades for this book to be compiled. But the early part, around 740 years before Christ. Here's what's happening. I wish I had time. I challenge you to go home. You say, I want to know more about this passage. Go back and read chapters 1 through 8, and here's what you will discover. So let's jump right to your note for background's sake. In chapters 1 through 8, God is reminding Judah and Israel, the ten northern tribes, but especially he's reminding Judah that they have had great privilege, tremendous advantages, Because they were the descendants and the children of Abraham. The problem is Judah and Israel for that matter had not taken advantage of those privileges of being the descendants of Abraham. Lots of advantages for them. They had not taken advantage of that. And as a result they had actually despised God because of all their sin. So there's great sin throughout the land of Judah and Israel. Great sin. Literally, we could preach a message on chapters 1 through 8 just highlighting sin. Listen to a list, a partial list I've compiled. I know you're writing that, but listen in the background of your mind some of the sins that Isaiah lists in chapters 1 through 8. Catch it. Compare. Watch. He says that their princes were companions of thieves. 
your princes. What that means is the family members in the palace and in the leadership of the land, the family members are making crooked backdoor deals with people. Hmm. Family members of the leadership of the land making crooked backdoor deals for personal gain. Oh, anyway, moving on. There are people giving bribes. That's sin. Giving Hey, I want a deal. I need justice for hire. Bribery's being given. Unfortunately, bribery's being accepted. The poor in the land being abused. The fatherless. The widows being taken advantage of. Translation, those who can't defend themselves being ripped apart. Huh, almost like those who can't defend themselves in our day in the womb, in their day, the fatherless and the widow and the poor just being run over by the strong. Those who have the power to make decisions. Here's another one. The land is filled with fortune tellers. They're making both Judah and Israel, making alliances with foreign nations, pagan nations. This is forbidden by God. The land is filled with idolatry. In other words, the people. This is God's people. They love other things more than God. Their hearts are filled with pride, and as a result, their faces are haughty. This is listed. Here's one. Isaiah says that the land is filled with people, catch this, this quote, who are, quote, heroes at drinking wine. Heroes, people get a reputation kind of looked up to because of how much alcohol they could consume. Drunkenness just ran over the land of Israel. And as if that wasn't enough, you had the kind of all-consuming one. This literally happened. They were calling evil, that's good, and good that's evil. Over here's evil. That's good. We're tired of the ways of God. This is good, though it's evil. And that's bad. That's evil, though it be good. Second note this morning, write this down. As a result of all their sin, God made it known and he declared, he must punish Judah for their sins. And in their time period, the practical tool that would be used in the hand of God is a nation that was even more wicked than Judah and more wicked than Israel. But the immediate threat in Isaiah's day was the rising Assyrian empire. At this point, Jonah has already started and progressed his ministry, his ministry primarily to the ten northern tribes, and we know that he had a ministry to the nation of Nineveh. They had the, the, the city of Nineveh who was the leader of the Assyrians. They had a time of revival, but that has since passed, and the Assyrians are on the rise. And listen, Isaiah, because of the sins of Judah, God is telling that nation through Isaiah, I'm going to use the Assyrians, and then he even warns them before the end of the book, another nation after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, I'm going to use them to punish you. And so we're in a split kingdom. You would think, because these people know that when God's prophet says something, it's going to happen, you would think they would repent and confess and beg God for mercy. You know what they do? Make more alliances. It, Judah tries to make an alliance with the Assyrians to protect them against the ten northern tribes and Syria. So Damascus. So I'm, again, I'm doing a little map in my head. Watch, work with me. We have Judah with Jerusalem. Up here you have the ten northern tribes and above that Damascus and Syria. And then over from your direction, I think would be, yes, this direction, you have the Assyrian Empire. So Judah makes a league with them to protect against these. Falls through. Then they realize they're coming, so, hey, the three of us need to make a leak. It falls through. Nothing's going to work. And eventually, as you know from history, and if you know your Bible history, the Assyrians conquer the northern tribes, make their way down into the southern tribes. There's a short time of revival under Hezekiah, so the Assyrians do not completely destroy Judah, but that revival is short-lived. And though the Assyrians carry away the northern tribes into exile, eventually... Judah goes back into their sinful ways, and God then sends the Babylonians who conquer the Assyrians, and they come about 100 years later, and they destroy the land of Judah and carry them away captive as well. Jeff, why did you say all of that? If you have your Bible open, in a moment, you're, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, but it has to be set up by verse 21 of chapter 8. 
I apologize for not having this on the screen. Quick drink of water. Notice verse 21. This is all the sin and judgment. It's just a cycle one after another with a little bit of hope. But then sin and judgment. Verse 21, here's kind of a summation what the Lord says. They will pass, talking about people. They will pass through the land. Now catch the power words. Greatly distressed and hungry. They'll pass through the land. People are going to be passing through the land. Greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged. They're starving, and they're going to be enraged and will speak contemptuously against two people, against their king on earth. It's your fault and their God. They're going to, so God's punishing them, and their reaction is to speak against the king and speak against God. And they'll turn their faces upward. What will be the result of that? Then the Bible says they will look to the earth. Is there any help out there anywhere in the earth? These Assyrians and these Babylonians are just destroying us like we're starving to death. Literally, it hit a point. They were eating their own kids while being besieged. Eating their own children to stay alive a little bit longer. Verse 22, they will look to the earth and behold, catch the power words, distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish. Guys, what does the Bible mean? I don't have time to go into it. But there is gloom of anguish. This is what Isaiah is saying. This is coming. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now watch right here. Here we go. We're getting ready to read our text. Isaiah is in 740 B.C. Making predictions about judgment to come that were actually fulfilled in 722. Just a couple of decades later. 722 is when the Assyrians came through the north and conquered the ten northern tribes. Came down into Jerusalem and even besieged the city but God miraculously delivered them but later on the Chaldeans the Babylonians so here's Isaiah predicting this but now he's looking ahead to a day of hope and so we're very familiar with the last two verses we're going to read today this is the background of it because it's gloom and anguish and extreme darkness and distress and hunger. And he says, this is here, but now he's going to jump. He's going to go back and forth. Pay attention to the verbs. Verse number one. Here's our text. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, you see what Isaiah just did? Isaiah's here predicting this. Now the Holy Spirit's carrying him here, and he's looking back to that, and now he's looking to this time of deliverance. Verse 1 again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan. What's this land called? Galilee of the... We could have, and I'm kind of later... This is a good title. This is a good title. I later thought, you know, we could have titled this message, Gloom to Glory. That's what verse 1 is all about. What happens to make everything go from this gloom to glory? Well, something happens. Verse 2 continues. So he says it's, it was gloom, and then he's made it glorious. He's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2. Watch the verb tenses. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Notice how he's writing as if he's in it. He's, he's past it almost. Though he's still 750 years before it's going to happen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What's the result of this light? You, Isaiah writes, about God, the Father, you have multiplied the nation. I don't know about you guys, but I'm liking chapter 9 a lot better than chapter 8. Verse, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. How? As with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. That doesn't mean a lot to us. I realize that. But if you lived in their day, 
people were rejoicing in that day. The best way they could say it is like, there will be rejoicing over this light and what the Lord's going to do in the future when he lifts the gloom and turns it to glory. There will be such rejoicing. It'll be like them in their day when the harvest came in. It, I get, we've never, I've never lived in a famine. I do remember people when I was a kid being backed up to get gas. I do remember that in the late 70s, early, early 80s. But I don't remember ever a famine in our land. You, you go to the grocery store. I remember famine of toilet paper not long ago. But food, what he's saying is in their day when this looks like a good crop, I think it is. And when they bring it all in and they put it into the barns and they look and behold, we have more than enough food to eat all the year. We're going to have some to sell and buy everything. And then they would celebrate. It was a big deal. He says at the end of verse 3, they're going to be glad as when they divide the spoil. It's like you've gone to war, you fought a hard battle, and you win. And to the victor goes the spoils. This is yours. Uh, can I have that? That's yours. What do you want? And you come and you just divide it all up. If I could say it this way, this is a small, small thing. When a championship team has finally gone through the whole season and worked through the tournament and they win at the end, I I'm thinking the NCAA tournament, and all the, all the confetti goes everywhere and the streamers go everywhere and all the young guys run out onto the court. Or if you want to look at the Super Bowl, I don't know why they waste the champagne, but they shoot champagne to each other's eyes. All I know is they're super excited and everybody's celebrating and it's... It's, we got the trophy. What he's saying is something's going to happen after this. At this point, it's going to be like winning the championship. It's like a ticker tape parade. It's like we won the battle. What's the battle? What is everybody so excited about? What's this joy for? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, a yoke, servitude, bondage, his is Israel. Judah, here's why everybody's so excited, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. Hey, get busy. Yes, sir. Get back at And the rod of his oppressor, just beating them, whipping them. Why is everybody excited? For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You guys remember when the Midianites so heavily oppressed Israel that they couldn't even show their food for fear that the Midianites who were their oppressors would come and just steal their food? If they were processing their food, you had to do it in secret because the Midianites would come and steal it. And what are you going to do? Fight them? They'll kill you. They'll kill your kids. You let them take your food, and you hope you can scavenge somewhere else and find some other food. But he says, this victory that, that the Lord is going to bring, it's going to be like breaking of the yoke of their oppressor, like back on the day of Midian. All right, rhymes with Midian. Which judge in the Old Testament did God use to deliver victory over the Midianites? Gideon. You remember that? Remember Gideon's big, mighty thousand, thousands and thousands of army? You say, no, Jeff, he started with thousands. He ended up with how many? 300. With 300 men, Gideon goes and takes on the Midianites. Now, all they have is 135,000 soldiers. He's got 300. And they're armed. Now, Gideon's 300. They're armed with AK-4. No, they're armed with pitchers. Pitchers. Oh, they got some trumpets, and they have some lights, and they have their vocal cords. Go to war, you 300. Oh, wait a minute, are you serious? Long story short, I can't preach on that text. I wrote down four words in my Bible. When, when the Bible says here in verse 4, what's all this joy about? Because the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. As like on the day of Midian, I wrote down three, four words. God did it quickly. God did it decisively. God did it divinely. And God did it strangely. We're going to use what? Pitchers, trumpets, lamps, and your vocal cords. That don't ever work. 450 to 1. Oh, it works perfectly because it's done divinely, and it's done quickly, and it's decisively, and it's strangely. Hey, wait a minute. What's this master, what's this servitude that he's talking about that something's going to cause glory and not gloom? And 
It's going to be like the victory of the Midianites. And could it be that it will be done quickly and decisively, and this victory will be done divinely, and this victory will be done strangely? We heard it sung about today. Well, how great a victory is it? Quickly, look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, all their boots, boots of the enemy, and every garment rolled in blood, their garments rolled in blood. Well, what are we going to do with their boots and garments? They will be burned as fuel for the fire. Literally what he's saying is, we're not going to throw away their bloody garments and their boots. They're actually going to become beneficial. We need something to fuel the fires. Let's use their implements. So hold on. You guys, I don't know about you. This sounds great. I like this a lot better in chapter 1 through 8. But the question arises, how do we know there's going to be this light? How do we know there's going to be this enlightenment? How do we know there's going to be this joy? How do we know there's going to be this deliverance? The first word of chapter 6 is a big word. We say it often. Handles Messiah uses it many, many times through there. But notice, how do we know this is going to happen? Because we're getting ready to live through anguish and distress and hunger and gloom. Here's your cue. Back in chapter 7, he says, a virgin shall conceive. Here in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, here's what you look for. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. For to us, a child is born. A, you mean you're not going to sing like an arm? No, to us, a child is born. To us, a son. It'll be a male child. A son is given. He's going to be born. There's going to be a male boy, a male baby boy. A baby boy is going to be a gift. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to break this other rulership, and he now will be the governing force. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. What kind of government is he going to have? His name, here's the cues. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Watch verse 7. Of the increase, because I'm not going to have time to preach on it, let me just quickly hit a couple of things. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Watch. Of the increase of his government. Of the increase, there'll be no end. There'll be no end of what? The increasing of his government. There'll be no end of what? Of the peace of his government. No end. That sounds like something I've hinted at the last two weeks. For the last two weeks, I have said my opinion. Guys, I believe we're only on the ground floor of something that goes and goes and goes. Had no intention of reading this text today. Is this another clue? Here's your hint of the increase of this child, this baby boy, of his government, the increase, there'll be no end. It'll never stop increasing. It'll never stop in time. It'll never stop in location. There will not be little pockets of resistance. It will go and go on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now watch the last line. The zeal. How do we know this is going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ladies and gentlemen, zeal means it's this idea of literally becoming red-faced. Not an unrighteous jealousy like we have, but the word zeal is associated with being jealous. God is so jealous and zealous for his glory that the Lord of hosts ensures that everything in verses 1 through 7 is going to happen. Isaiah's predicting. This is so guaranteed, he is writing about it as if, as if it's already happened. Notice his wording. The light has shone. Again, he changes these verb tenses. It is so sure. What guarantees it? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Last thought before we hit our points this morning. Watch. So this week I'm in Revelation. Two weeks ago, and I'll be in Revelation for a couple more weeks. This past week I read, I don't know if it's chapter 9 or chapter 10. Do you know there were, there's going to be four angels that God is going to use to, to kill one-third of the people on the planet? Potentially and presumably we're talking about billions of people. Four angels. The impression I get from that passage is that they're allotted, they're specially designed and specially prepared angels who will kill 
one-third of the human beings, and I don't sense that it's a strain. I sense that it could be much more, but that's all they're allowed to do. You say, so then I guess, wow, these must be super powerful beings. Our hope is in, oh, no, no, no. Our hope is not in beings like that, as powerful as they are. Our hope is in a child. Our hope's not in, they're super powerful. They're nothing compared to this one, though. This one has the whole government upon his, this one tells them what to do. Notice this morning, number one, Jesus' coming gives light to the blind. Obviously, by just giving you that note, we're already interpreting who is this child, who is this son. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah here, 700, watch, 750 years in advance, he's looking forward to a time when this child, the son, will be given, and he will change everything. And primarily, here's how he starts. He's going to bring light. If you're taking notes, here's what we're writing. Watch. Isaiah sees 750 years into the future, after realizing gloom and distress and hunger and enragement, he looks ahead to a time when the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion has been lifted. It's not remembered anymore. Now watch verse 1. Look back at verse 1. Let's hit it quickly. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. She was in anguish. Who's her? In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is Isaiah's way of prophesying that there's going to come a time when this child, this, this, this baby boy is going to come. And when he does, watch, he will be reared in the land of Zebulun. And he will set up his kingdom in the land of Naphtali. If you're writing that down, he's talking about the land of Galilee. If you want to just put a code word for both of those. Isaiah is making a prediction. The Messiah will set up his ministry in Galilee. I'm not going into all of that, but can I just take your mind back, oh, just a mere year and a half ago when we were in Matthew chapter 4. I'm not going to put a map up. I'm not going to have you take time to turn to the back of your Bibles, but if you were, hang with me, watch. If you were to go back and say, and you were to find the tribal allotments of the 12 tribes of Israel, they've won the battle, they've come uh, out of Egypt, and Moses and Joshua, and Joshua leads them. It's time to divide the land. So all this narrow strip of land, watch. The northernmost section went to the tribe of Naphtali, and then just below that went to the tribe of Zebulun. Nazareth is in Zebulun, and the city of Capernaum is going to end up being in the land of Naphtali. And so what Isaiah is predicting in advance, before it ever happens, that when this child, this Messiah comes, he's going to set up his base of operations. Watch. When an enemy nation invaded Israel, the place, the land, the people that caught the brunt of their invasion, the worst of it would have been, no doubt, Jerusalem, but at first, Zebulun and Naphtali. In other words, you don't want to live there because that's where the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and that's what you're going to be known for. Watch. The Lord is saying, Zebulun, Naphtali, take comfort. You're not going to forever be known as the ones who were first invaded. You will be known as the one, the place, who played host to the greatest life the world's ever seen. He's not, he's of the tribe of Judah, but he wasn't raised in Judah. He will be called a Galilean, and so honor will be placed upon you. Look at verse 2 quickly, watch it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Question, can I ask you this? What is darkness? What is this darkness? You say, well, I guess the sun didn't shine very well there. It must be real cloudy. It must be like London. Not that I've ever been to London, but I hear the sun doesn't shine a lot in London. Why would you want to live there? But anyway, probably a nice place to visit. All right. has nothing to do with the physical sun. What is this darkness? You say, well, Jeff, it's spiritual darkness. All right, hang with me. Don't answer out loud, but I want you to think in your mind. Exactly what is spiritual darkness? What is spiritual darkness? I want to propose to you it's three things. Number one, spiritual darkness refers and, and represents mankind's ignorant mind. It's man's ignorant mind. I'm not name-calling. I'm not saying we're stupid. not saying we're low IQ. Nothing like that. What I'm saying is all people are born with an ignorant mind. 
We have ignorant minds. Jeff, ignorant to what? Spiritual things. Here's what we're ignorant to. All people, you and I included, were all born not able to make sense of the truths of God. This is why every human religion left to itself always has some version of the same thing. We realize we need some salvation. We've done all these wrong things. All of our religions left to ourselves always come up with some version of we must perform better. We've done wrong. We've got to do better. We've got to make up for it. We've got to sacrifice. Along comes God and says, you're totally on the wrong track. You know nothing. You are blind to the truth. You're blind to the most urgent truths of God because he does all the saving. The only way to be saved is through Christ. We're born blind. Study the religions of the world. They'll see, they, they know there's a God for thousands of years. Study them all. There's a God, and someone will be like, oh, he's really big, but not big enough. Oh, he's really, really strong, but not strong enough. Oh, he's angry, and God is angry at sin. But some of them have this God that is perpetually angry. He's always angry. He's never satisfied, though you try to appease him. Here's some people's version of God. Oh, he's moody. He's hot, and he's cold. He's in, and he's out, and he's up, and he's down. He's kind of in our favor sometimes, and then he just kind of switches all at once. And that's what they believe God is. Others have this version of God. Oh, there's a God, and he's out there, but he doesn't really care. He's off doing something else. He's aloof. He's distant. And whatever they come up with, the modern one in the United States, by the way, is a very loving God. He doesn't care about sin. He's kind of chill. He's just chill. He's, he's okay with our living. That list that I went over earlier to Judah, that all, every one of them applies to what's going on in our country. God's okay with it. This pandemic and this economy and the things that are happening, things that are going to happen in the next few years, that's just cycles. There's no being out there that's like bringing judgment on the world. Uh, yeah, you're fooling yourself if you believe that. And then along comes Jesus Guys, even when mankind learns something about God, an attribute, we never put it in balance. It's always out of balance. But along came Jesus, and with him there was this light. And it was light to see what God is like. You say, I want to know what God is like. Let's study the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see the attributes of God perfectly balanced in Jesus Christ. He is the child. He's our hope. What Isaiah is saying is, guys, all of our hope, the hope of the world, the hope of Israel, it's all riding on this child, this son who was given. Secondly and quickly, what is darkness? It's a darkened, wicked heart. Mankind is all born with a wicked heart. Say, Jeff, our mind doesn't perceive things. True. But our wicked heart loves other things more than God. We love, this is what's amazing. We're born in this world loving sin. You say, Jeff, there's some sin I don't love. Okay, but there's some sin you do love. You're drawn toward it naturally, and this is what God hates. We're born with a wicked heart. We're born in darkness. We, and we have a will that goes after wickedness. We love it. We chase it. God hates it. And that inevitably, this darkened mind and this darkened heart will affection Inevitably, inevitably leads to a darkened, sinful, wicked life. Without fail, that describes man. Now, here's what happens in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they're walking around ignorant. They're walking around loving other things more than God, not loving God, loving sin, and walking around committing acts of sin. This is, they are walking in darkness, and then comes Christ. And when Christ comes, not only on a region, ladies and gentlemen, I hope this is personal to you, when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks light on your spirit, on your soul, something starts happening. He replaces the darkness, literally level by level, he replaces the darkness with his light. So that all that I just said, when Christ comes to a person, it reverses everything that was just said. So write these quickly. He gives us an enlightened mind. When Christ comes to me and he reveals what God is like and he reveals the way of God, here's what I learned. I'm able, and you too, we're able to perceive. Wait a minute, I can never save myself. They're able to perceive the only way of salvation is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about him. Where did you get that information? No one else around the world thinks this way. Only Christians believe this. They've been given an enlightened mind. Number two, 
What does God do? When Christ breaks light on us, he gives us a brand new heart with brand new affection. Every Christian loves God. Let's say that again. Every Christian loves God. Someone may think, oh, I got saved, Jeff, because I didn't want to go to hell. But I'll promise you, you also got saved because you want God. If you didn't get saved because you want God, then you didn't get saved. The Lord does something. He brings a light. That's my old affection. And I still may battle that, an affection for sin. But now I have something that is greater. I love the Lord. And then third, inevitably, give it time. It's called sanctification. The Lord brings light to the life. In other words, this person starts living a godly life that honors the Lord. Darkness has been dispelled. Light has taken its place. And that's what the Lord in Isaiah is predicting. This people who walked in ignorance, who walked with inordinate affection, who walked with a sinful life, all of a sudden now they are perceiving things. And they have a new affection. And their life has changed. Right before I hit the second point, can I say this? Any supposed Christian, again, any supposed Christian who when they check their heart honestly comes to these conclusions. Jeff, I can't make heads or tails of anything in that book. I've heard it before. I'm trying to listen to you right now. This makes no sense to me. Uh, but I'm going to heaven. If any person calls themselves, supposes themselves to be a Christian, but in their heart, here's the honest thing. I don't really love God. I don't love His Word. I don't care about the Lord. I don't care about learning. It doesn't make sense to me. I just like the music and the vocals. Man, you some of those notes. That was great. And now the preaching, this part's just boring me to tears. I don't care about God, uh, but I'm on my way to heaven. And if a person just continuously lives a life that is dominated by sin, well, listen, the reason you have no spiritual perception and the reason you have no spiritual affection and the reason that you live a life that is still dominated by sin is because you're still living in darkness. It cannot be otherwise. A true Christian has had those darknesses removed. Number two, notice with me, Jesus' coming brings joy and deliverance. This is actually two other points, but I made myself feel better Thursday when I boiled it down to two, right? Oh, just make it two, and I'll save a little space on my paper, feel better. Notice verse three. We're looking, what does he bring? He brings enlightenment. The coming of Jesus brings joy and deliverance. Look, look at verse 3. Now focus. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 3 at the top. You have what does that mean? Hey, you theologians out there, what does this mean? Think with me. Don't just listen to me. Check me. Is, am I rightly dividing the word of God? You should always be saying, Lord is what he thinks true. Then any red flags go up. What is this? Why are they so excited? The light has come, and when this child, this son comes, it leads to you, Lord, multiplying the nation. You say, oh, Jeff, I think I know what it is. That's where the Jews were dispersed because of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities and exiles, and it's when the Lord brings the Jews back from the diaspora. They're coming back to the land. That's not what this is talking about. You have multiplied the nation. That leads to them being joyful. Hold your spot. I told you we'd hit two or three. Go to Genesis chapter 17. Go there quickly. Genesis 17. You have multiplied the nation. So Genesis 17, we have this man named Abram. Abram. He's 99 years old. He comes to the Lord, and the Lord reveals himself. Abram, I am God Almighty. I want you to live before me. I want you to be blameless because I'm going to make a covenant with you. So Abraham falls on his face. Look at verse 4. You're in chapter 17. Look at verse 4. God Almighty says to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Right. Abraham's the father of the Jews. He's the father of the Hebrews. True. Do you know there's someone sitting here this morning, you're like, I've been a Christian all my life. Like, what in the world? You need to update your theology because verse 4, the Lord says, Behold, my binding agreement with you is that you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be, be called Abram, exalted father. You're not going to be Abram anymore. Your name shall be Abraham. Why the new name? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
question. Multitude, okay, Abraham. Go back to Isaiah 9, verse number 3. You have multiplied the nation. Then what is it? Wait a minute. Something about when this child, this baby boy comes, it's going to like multiply the nation. Raise your hand if you have a clue. You think, say, I think I know what the multiplication of the nation is. If you're taking notes, write this down. This speaks of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring Gentiles, us, into the household of faith. Just as God promised to Abraham. This is what God promised, and here it is being fulfilled. It is no longer just a Jewish people. It is Jews and Gentiles, and they are filled with joy. Why? Verse 4. We see how they're filled with joy, so much so that they're like winning the championship or winning the war, or there's plenty of food for the next year. Verse number 4. For the yoke, now think with me, what exactly is this yoke? What, what is this? What's everybody so excited about? What's going to cause such joy at the end? For the yoke of his burden, we know in context that would be Israel or Judah, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. And he says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is this oppressor that is broken its rule its reign its yoke over people not on the screen i want you to listen to chapter one verse four hear what right out of the gate isaiah writes the following as from the lord ah sinful nation a people laden with iniquity these people probably read this and thought the Lord's going to throw off the yoke of the Assyrians. He's going to throw off the yoke of the Babylonians. And yes, he does. He used the Persians to do it. History tells us that. God wasn't. But what he's talking about here, as Isaiah is looking ahead in the future, he's saying, no, this child's going to throw off the worst oppressor that mankind has ever known, namely our sin. And sin is a cruel taskmaster. Sin makes us do things and then beats us up for doing it. He will break the yoke of that so that it no longer has any power. That's what this child will do. How thoroughly will he do it? Look again at verse 5. I'm going to get this across. I'm going to say it fast. I don't know if it will connect or not because I've got to finish with verse 6. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jeff, what, what does that mean? I was checking something that Piper had to say about this, and as he was talking about it, it connected. What is this? If you're taking notes, write this down. Watch. Verse 5 means that Christ's victory for us over sin, remember he does it strangely, a cross? You're going to save the world through a cross? You're going to do it quickly, divinely, completely, strangely, just like how he won the, the battle with Midianites? Write this down. Verse 5 means that Christ's victory for us over sin is so thorough that even our hardships become opportunities of benefit. Hang with me, Christian, like, listen. Hardships, so thorough is the victory of Christ over sin. Even hardships in our life are good things. They're beneficial. God is putting them to use. You say, what use is hardship? James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Paul says to the Romans in chapter number 8, we are more than conquerors in all these things. All these things come against us. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Why? Because chapter 8, verse number 28, all things are working together for our good. Literally, even hardship in this life is only driving me closer to the Lord and making me more dependent. That's a benefit. That's a good thing. Hey, what are we going to do with these boots and bloody garments? Well, let's use them. Watch. Even our past sin is useful. So it's useful for shame. <laughs> if we delve in it the wrong way, our past sin, it is never a reason to commit more sin. But past sin, you know what past sin can do? It can be in a unique, strange way, used, useful, beneficial, as something that like causes us to praise God even more. Lord, I praise you for your grace and your mercy because look at what I did. What he's saying is, even the boots and bloody garments of our enemy it's not just thrown away. It becomes useful to the victorious 
Christian who's had sin broken. And now if you would, let's finish by coming down the home stretch. Look at verse 6. I will not have time to look at these titles in depth. But we're going to finish this morning by touching on them. The first one, I'll spend a little longer on it. Actually, I'll spend longer on it than the other three combined. Watch verse 6. How do we know this enlightenment? How do we know that this joy is coming? How do we know that this deliverance is going to come? Here's your sign. For unto us a child is born, to us a son. When this virgin in chapter 7 gives birth to the son, to the child, then you'll know this, verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. What kind of government is he going to have? His names are cues and clues to us. What kind of kingdom are we part of? What kind of kingdom are we heading into? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hold your spot. Romans chapter 11. Would you flip over there? Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. He shall be called. He is called. Wonderful counselor. Why? Having just covered what I think to be, along with Ephesians 1, the deepest theological section in the Bible. We could go back even to Romans 5 through chapter 8, but especially chapters 9, 10, 11, just all this heavy, heavy stuff that's way over our head. It's over Paul's head, and he's the one who wrote it. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 3. Oh, why do we call him wonderful counselor? Oh, the depth Literally, the fathomless depths. You say, Jeff, what is fathom? I've heard that word. It's like being out in the sea, and they would send down these ropes with weights, and they would have markers, and eventually they'd be like, okay, pull it back up, and let's measure it. We're this many fathoms. This sea that he's going to talk about is fathomless. You cannot get to the bottom of it. Watch. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth. How rich is God? infinitely rich how wise is he infinitely wise how knowledgeable is he infinitely knowledgeable oh the depth watch it again oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments his purposes and how inscrutable his ways in other words inscrutable means it is impossible to understand and interpret God's ways Verse 34, great questions, two of them. Who has known the mind of the Lord? If you hear this morning say, I have fully known the mind, I fully know the mind of the Lord. Yeah, don't raise your hand. Who has been his counselor? You're like, well, God calls me all the time and I give him some instructions. I give him a little insight. He generally helps him out. I help him run the universe a little bit. He's not doing such a good job. He needs my help. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Why is Christ called wonderful counselor? Can I propose to you, he's called Wonderful Counselor because he's God. And God knows all things, literally, literally all things. I'm going to make a statement here in just a moment that if most of you were to sit and contemplate, some of you would be, Jeff, I disagree with you, or you would maybe say, not that strong. You might not say, I disagree with you. You might would say it this way, I don't know that I do agree with you. Say, Jeff, what is it? I believe there's nothing God doesn't know. Nothing. If it can be known, he knows it. I mean, take that as far as you want to go. Like literally every blade of grass on the whole planet. Right now, God knows every blade of grass. Right now, every bit of sand, God knows it all. Every hair on every, every head, every person who's ever lived, every person who will live, God knows every hair on every head. God knows every human meditation. God knows every partial thought because we didn't finish it. God, God knows every star. He knows every planet, every fleck of dust, every molecule, every drop of water, literally everything. And someone may sit and say, somebody's watching online right now. You're really, really smart. You're too smart. Because you hear that and you're like, ah, I just don't know. Here's the kicker. It's not a strain on God. It's just not a strain. And you're sitting there saying, I, I, just don't, I just don't think that about God. I don't think he literally knows 
how many stars, and I don't think he knows what's going on in the farthest star and all of the molecular makeup of that star or planet. I don't think he, oh yeah, he knows it. It just goes with who he is, and he's not straining to do it. And this baby, this child, is him. Write this down. God's wisdom, the depth, God's wisdom is his knowledge, infinite knowledge, applied skillfully, infinitely. Guys, this child that we read about, and I'm going back to Isaiah 9, this child is the one who created all things. He's the one. Guys, we didn't get lucky that we're 93 point whatever million miles away from this particular star. This particular star was made for this particular planet for us. It's not like, you understand, if we're half a million miles closer, if we're half a million miles further away, if we're 300,000 miles closer or further away, it had to be exactly This was his skill. It was his, watch, it was his skill and wisdom that put us on an axis, knowing that we would need day and night and we need rest. And he gives us this sun to warm the planet and to give us light. And he puts this moon around us to reflect some light at nighttime and to pull the tides of the oceans. And the oceans and the seas are filled with salt water because we need a good wash basin for the whole thing. Oh, but it's not all salt water because underneath our feet and in the streams and the creeks and the rivers, there's fresh water. Wisdom. The one who designed the human eye and the ear and our circulatory and our nervous system and our respiratory and digestive and reproductive and you name it. God did all that. This little baby does all of that. He is infinitely wise. And I get it. Verse 34 a while ago says his ways are inscrutable. If you're taking notes, write this down. Often God's ways are confusing. His ways are confusing. Lord, why And there's somebody here this morning, you're listening, you're really perplexed why God, okay, the Lord has all this ability and all this knowledge, then why is he, it's not the best way to do it. The Lord needs my help. Listen, the Lord invites our requests, but the Lord does not take our counsel. You and I counseling God would be like running over here to bed, to bath and body. I need all your candles. And we go out here and we set up on a table and we light all of the candles. What are you doing? I thought you were giving away his Christmas. Oh, no, no, no. I'm helping the sun. <laughs> Just put off a little more light. That's the dumbest thing that's ever been. Oh, no, no, my candles are going to help. The sun doesn't need. You're advising and giving counsel to God? God, listen, uh, you're not doing it the best way. I'm telling you, God is not running the universe the way Jeff would run it. He's not running the way you would run it. But he's right and I'm wrong. And he lets me make my request. So here's where I conclude on this. He is the wonderful counselor. If I have, and I have, if I've already trusted him with my eternal soul, why wouldn't I trust him when I find his written words of reliable, trustworthy truth? His ways are confusing, but ladies and gentlemen, when you find the words of God and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ pen, what you have recorded there are trustworthy counsel. Take it, live by it, devour it, hunt for it, search it, study it. We have access to the wonderful counselor. So in closing on that first one, I told you it would be the longest. What's the point? What's Isaiah trying to show us? The main idea of Jesus being a wonderful counselor is to show us, here's important, the ruler of this kingdom is all wise, all wise. Number two, moving on. He should be called mighty God. I'm going to be super brief on this. Some people want to water this down. A lot of people water it down. He should be called mighty, wonderful counselor, mighty God. We don't water it down. Without going into a whole lot of theology, and some of you know what I'm getting ready to say, and others of you be like, I don't know what it means. Okay, watch. This child is not one of the supposed Elohim. He's not one of the supposed gods. He's not a king. He's not a lord. He is the almighty El. He is the almighty El. He's not just one of the lowercase Elohim. He is the Elohim. He's the creator Elohim. Plural. I understand The Trinity in the Old Testament is much more veiled there than it is in the New Testament. But Isaiah was given a glimpse. And Isaiah, I don't know that he understood. But what he's writing is this child, this son, is not only a wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. He's mighty God. He is God. 
This is important because what he's going to do is we're going to require him to be God. He has to be God. He is the El Shaddai. He's El Hey, El Roi, El Elyon. He's that El. He's not an Elohim. He's the Elohim. What's the point? Here it is. Write it down. The main point of him calling him the mighty God is for us to know that we're not only talking about an all-wise God, we're talking about an all, all-powerful ruler. He's the all-powerful. He's the all-wise ruler. He's the all-powerful. Oh, hold on. Time out. Now, that's quite a combination if that falls in the wrong hands. Think about that. All-wise, all-powerful. That's taking a risk. What do we know about this person? Oh, good news. Look at the next phrase. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. And this one causes us problems, right? So, Jeff, does this mean that baby Jesus is God the Father? No. Well, it sure looks like it. No. Write this down. This does not mean there's no distinction between God the Father and God the Son. Though Jesus, while he's on earth, says that he and the Father are one. They are one in essence. They are one in nature. But they are distinct persons within the one Godhead. And some of you are like, okay, I'm trying to write a note. What in the world did this guy just say? Okay, confession. I'm talking about what I don't know what I'm talking about, but here's what I do know, okay? You are a very contorted picture of God. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. You're one person. Your body is not your soul, and your soul is not your spirit, and your spirit's not your body. But you're not three different people. You're in that way. You're a, again, muted picture of God. There is God the Father, there's God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and there's one God. But there is a distinction in persons between God the Son and God the Father, though they're one in essence and nature. So then, Jeff, what's going on here if it's not saying that the baby in the manger is God the Father? Let's write this down. What this is trying to tell us, the main idea, is that the Christ, the Messiah, has a fatherly character. He has a fatherly attribute about him. Now watch, this is important. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. Uh-oh, if that gets in the wrong hands, we're in trouble. Good news. He's an everlasting father. What's the thought? Is not the takeaway He's loving. He loves us like a father. He has fatherly love. He's protective. He's the one who breaks the yoke. He's a provider. Yes, he's all wise, and yes, he's all powerful. Good news, he's loving, and he is a provider. That's the point of everlasting father. And then we finish with the thought of the prince of peace. Are you seeing how these are building? He's, this ruler is all wise, He's all-powerful, and he uses all of his power and wisdom because he loves us to protect us and to provide for us. What's he providing? He's the provider and the prince, the originator, the pioneer, the giver, the diffuser of, ready, shalom. You're right, like peace, yeah. We hear peace, here's what we think. Jesus is going to bring a time period on earth where nations will no longer fight and people will no longer fight. True. He's going to take away what causes the strife between nations. But far greater than that, this is so important, far greater than taking away what causes strife between man and man and nation and nation, he's going to take away what causes the strife between man and God. This is our biggest problem. It's not fighting with each other. It's that we're born at enmity and enemies of God, our sin. He hates our sin. We love sin. We don't love God. Christ must deal with this sin problem. Let's finish this morning in Colossians one. Flip over there. Colossians 1. Let's learn what the Prince of Peace has done. The Prince of Peace, the diffuser, the pioneer, the giver. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 19. We're talking about Jesus, this child, this baby boy. For in him, all the fullness of God was all the fullness of God, not a partial for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this human person, 
and through him to reconcile. There's our, our power word. There's the peace. There's this war, but he brings reconciliation, harmony. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Notice he doesn't say things under the earth. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? How is this child, this baby, going to make peace? By the blood of his cross. And you, here's the fallout from it. You who once, three things, you were alienated, far away, and hostile, hostile toward God in your mind, doing evil deeds, were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. The Bible says he has now reconciled. In his body of flesh, that's why he had to become human, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He said, Jeff, what? Watch. What's this kingdom like? What's our ruler like? He's all wise. He's all powerful, all knowing, all wise, all powerful. Thankfully, he's loving and protecting and providing. What's he providing? Shalom. You're not like cessation of war. No, 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 no. All good. All good. Because of Christ's cross, he is offered to all of the people who put their faith in him. Here's the main thought of Prince of Peace. He is providing for us all good. Everything flows. Those four titles flow to this point. He's providing all good. That's why Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Jeff, what do you mean like all good? Guys, you understand, as we're heading into eternity, it will be all good spiritually, all good physically. You say, we don't, don't need physical blessings. We're in eternity. No, you're going to have a physical body. You're going to have that body glorified, and you will have all physical good, all emotional good, all spiritual good, all relation, all good, all good. In other words, this omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly loving, fatherly Messiah Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to use all of that to work out all good for everyone who puts their faith and trust in Him. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want to close with this brief thought. We'll pray. Hear verse 6 again. Catch the word. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is. Somebody say the word. To us, a son is given. given. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Did you hear that word? A son is given. Now hear the verse that was quoted and sung about just 45 minutes ago. Listen, watch this. John 3, 16. Hear the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave. To us a son has been given. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin. That's what we've earned. The wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's the message this morning. What's God like? Here's what God is like. God, ladies and gentlemen, is a giver. God is a giver. And when He gives, He gives the best He has, and He gives what we need. Listen, when we could not do anything about our ignorant mind and our wicked hearts and our wicked affections and our sinful lives, God sent exactly what we need, and that's a child, His Son. Yes, a son of Mary, but the Son, the one and only Son of God by nature. He sent what we needed, and His Son, who knew no sin, never sinned, took your sin and mine on Himself, and He died on a cross, born to die, born to die, and he paid the price for our peace, for us to have all good. God is a giver. So I've got to ask you, just before I pray, have, be honest, have you experienced the light of Christ? Have you experienced the joy of Christ? Have you experienced the deliverance that only Christ provides. Have you experienced, is that your life? If you say, oh yes, I've received the light. Can you, in your heart, honestly say, Jeff, 
not bragging, I've got a long way to go. Jeff, between me and the Lord, God helps me perceive things about Him and His Word. I perceive, when I hear it, I often recognize the truth of God. It's His doing. I'm just telling you, I have spiritual perception. Can you in your heart say, I've got a long way to go and I'm not perfect. I'm very imperfect, but I love God. I love the Lord Jesus. I love the Holy Spirit. Can you say, I love the Word of God? Can you in your heart say, I've got a long way to go and I'm very imperfect, but God has been changing my life and how I live. I have experienced the light and the joy of Christ because He has delivered me from sin's penalty and sin's power. God is a giver. If you can honestly say yes to those things, then let's just close with this. Right now, two things. Tell God the Father right now where you sit. Tell the Father how thankful you are for His indescribable gift. What a gift. Tell the Father, thank you for meeting all of our needs for His indescribable gift. And then tell the Lord Jesus that you value Him. Tell Him you love Him. Tell Him, I worship you. And oh, we long for the day and we love when we have times where even in this life, on this earth, we joy in Him as if we've won the championship. And like when we know we have all the food we will need and we've won the battle, does that describe our life? Does that describe grace for you? Tell the Lord Jesus, I value you. I love you. I worship you. You are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. You're the giver, the prince, the distributor of peace. Shalom. Father, we thank you for Christmas. Lord, I thank you for these folks' attention. Lord, I thank you for the truth of all the songs. But I thank you for the truth that Jesus saves. And that is the resounding chorus of his people. And Lord, as we now rest from our seats, I pray that we will go forth joyous because our worst enemy has been defeated. And you have determined to give us all good things. And your power backs it up. Your veracity, your truthfulness guarantees. Your zeal will make it happen. Thank you for Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.